0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. It would appear as though we should have been a bit more aggressive with our other Game 7 hangover fade. Because the Mavericks had one too. And now we've seen it. And now we remember. While everyone else forgets. It's actually kind of remarkable. There aren't that many Game 7s that happen in the NBA playoffs. And when they do happen, they tend to happen towards the end of the playoffs. So the quantity of them is generally somewhat low. But when you get there, it almost always happens. Now, the thing that almost always happens is that the team coming off a 7-game set is just not ready for the next team. They've been game planning for one opponent... For two straight weeks, it's the only thing they've worked on. For two straight weeks, they are gassed, they are ill-prepared, and they get beat up. Now, the difference between the Boston-Miami game and the Golden State-Dallas game was that the Warriors kind of took it to the Mavs right out of the shoot. Boston had a few punches. They had a good first half and then ran out of gas. Dallas just sort of had no gas right from the outset. And some of that is probably... Because the Warriors offensively are just so different than Phoenix. I say better, worse, whatever. Just really, really different. And Dallas wasn't ready for that. So the Warriors did cover. Unfortunately, it didn't go over. The Warriors did their part in it. They scored 112 on 56% shooting. Uh, but Dallas just had nothing in the tank offensively. So, you know, even though this game with a modicum of offensive efficiency would have gotten there, it, you know, Dallas just missed everything. They had 87 points, 86 field goal attempts in the game. They had one more point than field goal attempt. That's not great. Pace was decent. Pace was decent. Um, But, you know, we just needed one side to be better offensively. And that's the fear. Certainly, defense suffers when you have tired legs, but so does shooting. And you're sort of trying to wait which one... Is going to have the larger impact, and certainly the lack of shooting. Dallas, 36% in the ball game, that had a bigger impact than their ability to stop Golden State, their inability rather, uh, who put up 112, and that's cool. That's what we wanted to get to the over, but we wanted Dallas to get to you know 105, 106, whatever that would have been based on the expected total. Expected, by the way, total would have been Golden State 112, Dallas 105. Or Warriors one eleven, Dallas 106, whatever, with the line at about 5-5.5 five, five or 6. Uh, so the Warriors did their part. They actually got an extra point over what they needed to get to. And then Dallas came up like 20 points short. But today, it's Boston-Miami Game 2. And I can't help... Okay, so let me dial it back a little bit. By the way, we're going to, going to be talking about the Orlando Magic later in today's show as well. So stay tuned for that and I'll introduce the podcast after I get through a couple of these points here on the playoff games. Boston-Miami, game one, was a strict fade on public opinion coming out of the last series. Coming out of the last series, it was Miami just was fine and Philadelphia was terrible. And Boston was fantastic because they got past Milwaukee. It was the greatest victory ever. Uh, Send out a signal to the Moonlander, whatever. That's what was setting the public perception of this next series. Now, that's not entirely right, because Miami was the upper seed. So, yes, they should have beaten Philadelphia, but they didn't get the credit they deserved. They beat them. Yes, they lost two games in Philly earlier in the series when Joel Embiid came back. They beat Philly twice in Miami, without Joel Embiid on the Philly side. But then they beat him again twice with him. So, like, don't get me started on whether or not Philly blew it. Philly didn't blow it. They were the four. They were the underdog in that series. Miami was the one seed. They had home court. They were better this year. We should have been looking at that series and thinking, can Philly pull off the upset? But for whatever reason, the public opinion, the way that series was presented by the national media was, will Philly melt down and blow it when that never should have been the story. Meanwhile, I actually do agree a little bit more with the perception of the Boston Milwaukee series. That was a great series. Milwaukee probably should have won it despite being the three seed to Boston's two. Yes, they didn't have home court advantage and Boston was the betting favorite on the series price to start the series to start it. It flip flopped back and forth. You got, uh, We created a middle opportunity just the way we've already done with Boston-Miami. But here's the thing. It wasn't the upset of the century for Boston to win that series. They were the favorite coming into it. It was only an upset because they were down 3-2. to So they got counted out, and then they won against the reigning champs, the juggernauts, the Giannis's. No one felt like Boston should have been there. Even I thought from the outset it was weird. To see Boston as the favorite when it seemed like so many folks had written them off. I thought, and I thought Milwaukee was going to win the series. And when they were up 3-2, to I definitely thought they were going to win it. But as we've talked about on the show, if you can set up a middling opportunity, you do it. So we did. Great. It worked out for us. I was wrong on who won the series, but we won money anyway. That's pretty cool to be wrong and still come out positive. That's what you do when you're a long-term better. You're not going for the big swing. You're going for wins. It's pretty cool to be wrong and still win, which is what we did because we knew what the series was going to look like. We played the long, the two-week, it's not that long, I guess. Instead of the very short term, we went for the medium term. All of that background to say that coming into this series, there was this perception that Miami had skated by with two very easy series. Atlanta, yeah, you could argue that was a pretty easy one. Philly, that wasn't an easy series. Joel Embiid is a very, very good basketball player. And even if James Harden isn't old James Harden, he did kind of wheel Philly to one win in that set. And it took Miami six games to get past a pretty good Eastern Conference team. Did Boston have the harder path? Yes, yes. Brooklyn in the first round, Milwaukee in the second round, that's harder than Atlanta-Philadelphia. But Boston was the two-seed for a reason. They were a good team that was always going to be kind of a dead heat with a team like Milwaukee. So coming into this series with Miami, we saw the Lions move in the direction of a Boston type of ballgame. Everybody felt like Boston was the team that was coming in hotter or better or whatever it needed to be and everyone immediately forgot the toll that a seven game series takes on a team that's the end point of all of this we saw it again we saw it with the nuggets multiple times if i'm not mistaken in the bubble there aren't that many seven game series but when you get them The team coming out of that series tends to get an inordinate and disproportionately large amount of betting love because people felt like they just conquered the mountain and they are now unstoppable. When in reality, that team's ready to fall on their face for two days before picking themselves up and coming back again. It's very common for a team coming off a seven-gamer going up against a really good next opponent to lose game one. And it happened twice here. One game went over, one game went under. Both times, the tired team gave up more points than the line would have expected them to give up. So that stuck true. The thing we did get was that Boston actually scored 107. They didn't even need to. Miami scored 118. Boston only needed, what, 85, 86 points for that game to hit the over? That total was super low. The other thing I want to say about this Miami-Boston series is that, in general... The zigzag theory, which I don't know how many of you guys have heard of before, but in in NBA playoffs in particular, because there's long sets that teams tend to make adjustments, it's basically betting on adjustments. That each team is going to make key flips in whatever their strategy might be between one game and the next. And so the next game is not at all going to reflect what happened in the first one or the previous one so in this case a zigzag would be that boston plays much better and the game goes much slower in general the zigzag theory is hot garbage it's overblown it doesn't always work that way you oftentimes see teams double up on stuff playoffs just aren't that simple Luckily for us, because people have stopped abiding by the zigzag, kind of understanding that it in itself was an overreaction, there are opportunities now where the zigzag does make sense. I think this is probably one of those games. We saw Boston at their absolute most fatigued in the third quarter. It was the worst third quarter of their entire season, and we're like, we're almost 100 games into this thing for Boston now. How many times... First series took five games over the Nets. Was that right? Or did they sweep them? They might have swept them. That's how good my memory is. That's only like three weeks ago. Playoffs take forever. Either way, uh, 82-game regular season, at least 10 playoff games. Boston is in the mid-90s in games played, and that was the worst third quarter they played all year. Miami's good, yes, and Miami's playing hard because it's the playoffs, yes, but it's not because Boston just magically got bad for 12 minutes. It's because they were gassed. Jason Tatum had six turnovers in the quarter, his worst single quarter of the entire season from that perspective. That was a team that just lost focus because they had no energy. They're not going to be dealing with that same problem in this ballgame. The other kind of beautiful thing about the zigzag theory is that because the first game opened at 204 and dropped, sorry, opened at 206, dropped as low as 203, This last game is actually moving the other way because of how high scoring the first game was. But let me once again remind all of you what we saw in game one. We saw 66 combined free throws. These are not, I mean, Jimmy Butler gets the foul line, Tatum gets the foul line, but these are not teams like Philly where you just sit on them and expect them to get A truckload of foul shots every ballgame. Boston had 18 in their closeout win over Milwaukee. 18 in their closeout win over Milwaukee. They had 23 in their win in Milwaukee. Miami in their games against Philadelphia. They had 11 in their closeout win. And we're talking 66 in Tuesday's game between these two teams. Boston 32, Miami 34. These teams were just hacking. Hacking away. Going to the paint over and over again. Miami trying to exploit the fact that Boston was tired. They got their shots blocked sometimes, but they didn't care because they were drawing contact. They were getting to the rim. Miami had a ton of block shots because Boston had no legs. And it was relatively fast by all accounts. Miami was able to dictate the pace because Boston fell or got out in front. They were hitting shots. Miami was keeping up, and that was good enough. But Miami wants it to be a slightly quicker ball game. That's what they want. I do think that the lack of Marcus Smart and Al Horford hurts from a pace standpoint. Those are guys that can actually play good defense, they can slow things down. They're going to be also players that have a slightly better feel for game tempo. Whereas I think guys like Tatum and Brown, they might be more inclined to get caught up in what the opponent is doing from a speed perspective. And it's not as though the teams shot the lights out from the field. Miami was at 49%. That's pretty good. Boston was at 46%. That's fine. So from that standpoint, you know, this is a game that had about 220 some odd possessions in it. But again, if you have all of these fouls early in quarters, teams got into the bonus early So you had 10, 11, 12-second possessions that always resulted in points because of the free-throw line. Jimmy Butler went 17 of 18 at the foul line. Miami shot 88% at the free-throw line. They were fantastic, other than P.J. Tucker missing two. They missed four as a whole team. P.J. had half of those. So that game was a pretty goodly outlier a pretty goodly outlier. I would look for Boston to have a really nice performance here. I don't know if they're going to win outright. I don't even know if they're going to cover. I just think it's going to be a really close ball game, And I think it's going to be a good deal slower. So I would lean to the under in this one because it moved up, and now it's starting to come back down a little bit. And I would look at Boston because I do think that we're overreacting a bit to how bad they looked in the last one. That was more betting stuff than I wanted to do, and I haven't even said hi. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. It's Fantasy NBA Day, a sports ethos presentation. Shout out once again to our good buddies at Ethos Fantasy BB and Ethos Fantasy FB for their podcast football show three days a week right now. That'll ramp up to five days a week as we get closer to the football season. Baseball podcast is five days a week already. Joe Orico, up and over 700 Twitter followers already. How did that happen? Great work by Joe. Great work by you guys. Uh, Hoping that... I'm hoping that you guys are all doing what I've asked you to do and following those Twitter accounts. In particular, at Ethos Fantasy FB, the football account, because we're going to have a blurb feed over there and articles over there coming very, very soon. And the baseball one with the five days a week podcast, uh, it's just please do it I'm asking you nicely please do it today's Orlando Magic day here on the podcast and that's a team that ended up with better fantasy value this year than I expected uh, when the season began not that there wasn't something blended in uh we liked Mobamba he was on the Dan vespers old Man squad and he turned out to be a really nice play this year I was lower on Wendell Carter jr. Who uh you know, we had plenty of misses this year. That one, me saying that I liked Bamba more than Wendell Carter Jr. drew a lot of ire leading up to draft day, but that ended up being right. Bomba played in nine additional games and was ranked twenty-eight slots higher in nine category leagues. Some of that was turnovers, but not all of it. Either way, at the end of the day, both of those guys were pretty good on a per game basis. Bomba 53 per game, Wendell Carter Jr. 81 per game, but he did miss 20 ball games. The guys that kind of came out of nowhere on that club, early in the season, Cole Anthony had a really nice run before a bunch of other point guards came in and sort of blew up his spot. Jalen Suggs blew up his spot. Uh, Markel Fultz later in the season, only played in the last 18 games, but sort of helped to blow up his spot. And then Franz Wagner, who you guys know me, I'm not going to take chances on rookies. This is a huge surprise to see a wing, a rookie wing, post fantasy value, and he was number 101 in 79 ballgames, so really a good, he ended up being a really nice head-to-head play because he was durable, he was out there, his percentages were anywhere from decent to actually pretty good, very good foul shooter, and uh, contributed a few things kind of across the board. Also of note, Chuma Okiki, despite a very slow start to the year, finished at 102 on a per-game basis, 70 out of 82 games, and shot just 37.5%. So there was actually upside beyond that. Markel Fultz, by the way, finished at 196, but he was also limited to about 20 minutes of ballgame throughout the season. The Magic are... an intriguing beast. Because from a contractual standpoint, Mo Bamba is a restricted free agent, so he may very well not be back. Gary Harris and his $21 million are coming off the books. Markel Fultz has two years left and figures to play, probably not back-to-backs, but most of the season. Jonathan Isaac hasn't played in basically two full years. It'll be two years by the time he actually gets back out on the court. Robin Lopez and his veteran salary come off the books. Uh, Terrence Ross is an expiring deal next season. So he's a, I would say, an almost guaranteed trade. And Orlando has the number one pick in the draft. So someone's coming in that's going to be a feature play. So it's very hard to handicap the Magic for next year right now. What I think we can do somewhat safely is point to a guy like Wendell Carter Jr. and say, look, if nobody comes in That's an obvious replacement at center. He's a pretty easy big man to pick in that 80 to 100 range on draft day. Like a seventh round or eighth round, if you can get him that late. Big man who will put up value in that neck of the woods. He'll be, you know, kneeling near a double-double, squeezing up against it actually passed relatively well, almost three assists a ballgame, and then you'd hope that maybe the steals and blocks are a little bit better, but I, I don't think that you can bank on that. it will just be kind of met in the defensive categories, and, and everything else has been pretty decent. That one feels relatively safe. Mo Bamba going somewhere else doesn't feel all that safe, although you figure if a team's going to give him a decent contact, contract as a restricted free agent, they would have the inclination to play him. Will he have the same drive, to play 71 games wherever he goes in what would at that point then not be a contract year anymore. I don't know. I think he's probably going to be happy to be out of Orlando if he goes someplace else. Where would he end up? I have no idea. What team wants to sort of take a shot on someone who hasn't really proven themselves to be a guy that positively impacts the game more than like once a week, despite good fantasy numbers. He wasn't a massive positive impact play, but he can block shots, he can guard the rim, he can stretch the floor, he has an interesting skill set, someone's going to take a shot on that, and then hopefully give him 24-25 minutes of ballgame, because he would be a fantasy asset, wherever that ends up being. I'd be very surprised if he stayed in Orlando. That feels extremely unlikely, given that they do have a first-rounder coming in, and whoever that is, is probably going to be one of the core guys. It never really felt like Bamba was a core guy with this team, even though he pretty much did get to play sort of near starters minutes. And then what of Jonathan Isaac? There's just so much up in the air. If he doesn't start next season healthy, then I'm, I'm going to call some sort of conspiracy theorist because, it, like... You can't, It's that would be two full seasons. He's not going to play in back-to-backs. They're going to be extremely cautious with him because this is not a team that's about to make a playoff run next year. And then you got Markel Fultz who's probably going to be sitting out back-to-backs, but maybe he gets starters minutes. What are they going to do with Jalen Suggs? What are they going to do with Cole Anthony? One thing that we learned, I hearken back to lessons learned on this season. Don't draft players if you don't know their roles are secure. So I don't, you know me; I'm not big into the NBA draft. I think everybody feels pretty strongly that there's like two or three guys this year that are the obvious top few. Jonathan Isaac's getting paid a ton for the next four seasons, uh, three seasons now. At this one, now that this one's over, so he, they're gonna they're gonna play him somewhere in there. Fultz's his contract is for a while. Cole Anthony; he's cheap from a contract with Jalen Suggs. Okay. I don't think I'm touching any of the point guards in Orlando. I I don't think that I can. You got Suggs, Cole Anthony, Markel Fultz that are all going to be fighting for the same stuff. It feels like Fultz is going to get his playing time. We saw some good stuff out of Markel at the end of last year. It feels like Suggs is a guy they're probably going to start to lean on as a high pick from this last season. And that probably means Cole Anthony is going to be kind of the odd man out. Jalen Sugg's fantasy game wasn't translating this year. I'm not drafting him. Of any of those three, Fultz would be the one I'd take a shot on, but it would have to be like 11th round or deeper. And he's probably either going to see his value go way up or way down based on training camp. You know, Fultz is the starting point guard or starting shooting guard on that team in training camp, and it looks like he's going to get to play near starters minutes He's going to rocket up draft boards. So I just, I don't see a scenario where he stays in like the 120 range unless he actually looks like he's going to be bad, in which case then you don't want to get him. So no to Suggs, no to Cole Anthony. Jonathan Isaac, he's going to be the guy that I end up getting myself talked into. He's going to be the guy. I can already feel it. But we need to know he's starting the season healthy. And then at that point, we know he has second round upside in his per game production. We also know that he has, you know, 20 plus missed games potential on the total side. So he's not someone you could ever touch in a head to head format ever because he's not going to play in a back to back. I can't imagine on a team that's probably going to be tanking at least one more year, maybe exactly one more year. I don't know. I don't look that far ahead. It doesn't really matter. Chumokiki, I'm not drafting, uh, just to take a detour there for a moment. So it really does, and and Franz Wagner is probably going to end up getting picked a little bit too soon because he was solid at the beginning part of this, or or most of this year, and he scored, and he's all rookie first team and all that good stuff, but guys are just going to get squeezed on this club. Very little usage is being removed from the magic, and I would be inclined to suggest that, a decent amount is coming in. More Malchal faults as he gets healthy, more Jalen Suggs in his second year and health, a first rounder, Jonathan Isaac coming back. Where does the extra for Franz Wagner come from other than, you know, can he kind of assert himself in his second year? If he gets drafted inside the top 100... Not touching him, because he was right around 100 this year, and it felt like it went about as well as it could because there just wasn't that much competition for doing stuff. And he'll get better. You know, he'll get better. He'll continue to acclimate to the NBA. He'll add things to his game. Offensively, he might start to do some more stuff. But he's going to need more usage to hit that next threshold, and I don't know how that appears, based at least on the way the roster looks like it might shake out right now. But, oh, Jonathan Isaac. You are going to be the cruel temptress of this offseason. I will not touch him unless we see him play in training camp. Okay, let's just put that one very binary switch out there. If he plays in training camp, I'll consider it. But you know, I hate, won't do it. Not drafting someone who's injured to start the year. I need to know that Jonathan Isaac is set to play in the first game of the season for the Orlando Magic to even consider it. And then you got to go all the way back to 2019-2020, the COVID-shortened year where Isaac played 34 games and then blew out his knee and then came back in the bubble and blew it out again. Let me remind you guys, he played 29 minutes a game that year. It's a long time ago now averaged 12-7 and with a three-ball and 3.9 combined defensive stats. He was number 17 on a per-game basis that year. Yeah, the injury stuff is a big, bone-crushing deal that you don't really come back from. And yeah, there's a real chance that he plays 45 or 50 games this season. But, use... Here's here's how I want you guys to think about this year. Use Kristaps Porzingis as... And it's it's a different way of getting to that second round value because Kristaps averaged 20 points and 8 rebounds. But the other stuff is actually not that far off. Jonathan Isaac could very easily get around 7 rebounds. That's pretty close to, to Porzingis. KP was 1.5 three-pointers. Isaac could very easily be at 1.2, 1.3. Porzingis, 1.6 blocks this year. Jonathan Isaac could easily clear that. KP, big positive impact free throw shooter. Isaac, probably not going to be that. Both guys, field goal percent, probably in the mid to high 40s, mid 40s. So there's actually not that much separating those two dudes. I think Jonathan Isaac probably does more in the defensive categories than Porzingis did. Scores less and free throws less. But otherwise, they're pretty comparable from a fantasy standpoint not so much reality well actually reality too because they're both unicorny players that are like the woolly mammoth where they're just like their bodies aren't built for what they need to do on a basketball court Christoph Persink has played in 51 games this regular season he was number 17 on a per game basis and he was in the 50s by totals I think there is a very real chance That Jonathan Isaac plays in 51 games this year is a second-round value on a per-game basis and a fifth-round value by totals. So if you're looking at him from a Roto standpoint, fifth round is where you're looking if you're going to take that shot. Anything later than that, I think I would actually consider it. But again, if and only if... By the way, uh, I think it was actually early 50s by totals, by the way, so... Closer to late 4th, early 5th, and late 5th. That does make a difference. But if and only if he is scheduled to play in Orlando's season opener. That's it. Go follow Ethos Fantasy FB and Ethos Fantasy BB. And fantasy passers, go check out today's article from the great Steve Vidovich on the Orlando Magic. They go a little deeper than I did. Mike Passador, one of the greatest writers In Basketball had yesterday's article on the Houston Rockets. That, again, is for fantasy passers only. They break down every player on the team. They are awesome. You're like, what can I get out of a season in review article? I beg of you to go check one out. They're so good. They're so good. Man, those guys can write. I can't write like that. I can talk, though. That's what you guys are stuck with. What the hell day is today? Thursday, May 19th, off-season episode 29, officially in the books. We'll do another team tomorrow, maybe? I don't know. I kind of want to do the playoff rehash, although with only two series left, we'll probably have time for both. All right, tentatively, tomorrow, Friday weekend show, uh, we'll cover the third worst team in the NBA, which I think was Detroit. Is that the Pistons? Pistons or Thunder? They're all in there. Pistons or Thunder tomorrow? I haven't looked that far ahead. I do my work pretty shortly before the podcast. That way it's all in my head. Uh, It's either Pistons or Thunder tomorrow um, and a little bit of a playoff weekend thing. And then remember, the guys over on the Fantasy Pass side, the writers, they have articles coming out over the weekend as well. So they'll get out in front of us. And then we'll just kind of play a little bit of catch-up and, and piecemeal it together from there. we got a long off-season to, to meander our way through. As, once again, we put a delightful little bow and flower on the top of Off-Season Show 29. I am Dan Vespers for Sports Ethos, Ethos Fantasy BK, at Dan vespers on Twitter. Have a great Thursday, everybody. We'll wrap up the week tomorrow. We'll talk to you then.